So I guess we'll just go right into our study. I told you last week that because of the strong connection between Revelation, particularly chapter 13 where we started out last week with the first four verses, that we were going to go do a deep dive into Daniel chapter 7. I think it's going to take us two weeks to do it, so we'll do verses 1 through 12 today and then the rest of the chapter next week. And uh, these 12 verses alone are quite a bit of content, so I'm going to read through them. You can turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 or look up on the screen, but it's always good to keep in practice with uh, finding the various books of the Bible in your own Bible. I'm, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. NKJV. Uh, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots." A lot of detail here. And there in the horn, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now amazingly, what Daniel's just done here in these 12 verses He's laid out the entire course of human history leading right up to the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Christ. Pretty exciting, pretty interesting. Daniel, of course, uh, one of the princes of Israel who was taken into captivity along with a number of other Israelites, uh, captivity into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he rose to great prominence because of his ability to interpret the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the wise men who uh, spotted Christ's star and traveled from afar, you know, we three kings of Orient are and all that, they were Chaldeans from Babylon, and it was probably because of Daniel's influence on that caste, the Chaldeans. Uh, they were astrologers, astronomers, really scientists, if you will, more than they were magicians. But Daniel actually became the head of that order in Babylon of the Chaldeans and no doubt taught them about Jehovah God. If you've ever wondered, why were these wise men from the east, they weren't even Jewish, why were they looking for the king, for the, for the Messiah? It was because of the influence of Daniel hundreds of years earlier. So let's pray. Father God, we ask you to bless this time of study in your word that you would give us insight and understanding into all this imagery. Continue to equip your people, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, you might wonder why all this strange imagery and how can we even understand it? But in Daniel 12, God tells Daniel that these things will be sealed up, meaning not necessarily all that understandable until the last days, till the end times, when knowledge will increase, not only biblical knowledge, but secular knowledge. And obviously, as we see more and more of the things the scriptures predict unfolding before our very eyes, they become easier to understand. But let's dig into this and see what we can come up with. So we're here in the first year of Belshazzar. This would have been 553 B.C. roughly. 14 years before the fall of Babylon, which is described in chapter 5. Remember the handwriting on the wall? You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Meany, meany, tackle farson, however that goes. 14 years before that is where we are right here in the timeline. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. He had a um, dream and vision. So partially while he's awake, partially while he's sleeping. A vision is like a dream except that you're awake when it happens. Another significance here is that chapter 7 begins the portion of Daniel dealing with his prophetic dreams and visions as well as messages that he will be receiving from angels. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. This is a good idea. How many of you have ever had a dream that you felt perhaps had some significance, but you forgot it? So Daniel writes it down. That's a smart thing to do. I can't tell you how many songs I've lost over the years because I'll be driving along or I'll be doing something and I'll, a song will pop into my mind. And I'm writing this song in my mind, but I don't record it. I don't write it down, and then I forget it. So Daniel's very smart here to write it down. So then he spoke. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold. Now another interesting thing here, in the first six chapters, Daniel wrote in the third person. But in the last six chapters, he writes in the first person. So now he's saying, in my vision, the four, he sees the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So what are the four winds of heaven? North, south, east, west. You got your nor'westers, your sou'easters, right, and so forth. So he's got the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. In the literal sense, probably a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, but on a higher level, as we'll see in a moment, and we saw last week in Revelation 13, the sea represents humanity, this massive sea of humanity. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, these four great beasts, as we will see, represent the rulers of the four world empires that were previously described to Nebuchadnezzar in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. They came up from the sea, just like in Revelation 13.1, we see the beast, or the Antichrist, comes up out of the sea of humanity. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So we have here the king of beasts, the lion, and the king of birds, if you will, the eagle. Both are symbols of strength and speed, respectively. And they were used of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So the first great world empire to emerge was the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah 4, 7, the lion has come up from his thicket. And the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. And then verse 13, Behold, he shall come up like clouds, and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. So Daniel says he watched this lion that had eagle's wings till its wings were plucked off. And if you remember, this speaks of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar that's recorded in chapter 4, where he, uh, God brings insanity upon him, and he winds up out in the field crawling around on all fours, eating grass with the cows. Do you remember that story? And so his wings are plucked off because he failed to acknowledge God, to give glory to God. He built that giant image of himself and demanded that everyone bowed down to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were associates of Daniel, 
They refuse to bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, remember? But guess what? They don't burn. Just like in the New Testament, the Apostle John, they tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't boil. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of there smelling like a campfire, but they didn't burn. And when they looked down into the fiery furnace to see if they were burning, they said, wait a minute, there's four guys in there, and one of them looks like the Son of Man. Who do you think that was? Jesus was there with them in the fiery furnace. He will be with you when you're in the fiery furnace. So the wings were plucked off and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So this describes now, all within the same verse, the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar upon his repentance and submission to the Most High God, which did take place. But suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. This is a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire, known for its strength and fierceness in battle. Isaiah 13, 17, and 18. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, the Babylonians, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And so it's saying here that these Medes, the Medo-Persian army, empire, were so vicious, they didn't even care about the plunder, the silver, the gold. They just killed for the sheer delight of it. And interestingly, this bear was raised up on one side, and this is an indication of the superiority of the Persians over the Medes in the empire. Even though it was the Medo-Persian empire, the Persians really had the upper hand, and it had three ribs in its mouth. This quite possibly represents there are three major conquests. In 546 BC, they conquered Lydia. In 539, so even prior to the Lydia conquest, they conquered Babylon. And in 525, even earlier, they conquered Egypt. So that's the second great world empire. We have Babylon, we have the Medo-Persian Empire. Then thirdly, uh, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard so the leopard is an animal noted for its swiftness. Habakkuk 1.8, its cunning and its agility. Jeremiah 5.6, Hosea 13.7, if you're taking notes. This is the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And like a leopard, he just swept across that part of the world, the Mediterranean, uh, Asia, conquering and which had on its back four wings of a bird. Four, like the four winds, it symbolizes universality. So as far as the known civilized world, he pretty much conquered it all. Wings are also synonymous with speed. And the Greeks, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, rapidly conquered the known world. So we have the third empire, the Greek empire. And then the beast also had four heads. The beast being Alexander, the leopard. But after his death, what happened was the empire was divided into four parts, Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Macedonia, and given one-fourth to each of his generals. So the beast also had four heads. The four heads are the four generals, which then took control of the four different parts of his empire. And obviously that weakened it and eventually led to its downfall. Now, verse 7, are you guys tracking with me on all this? It's a lot of information, but I think it's very interesting. And it's very interesting how one of the things I love about the Bible that makes it different from virtually every other book in the world, and particularly every other so-called religious or spiritual book, is the great deal of specificity that God puts into his word and the 100% prophetic accuracy of his word. Because at the time Daniel wrote this, we're still in the first great world empire. We're still, when Daniel wrote this, Babylon was still large and in charge. But he also predicts all the future empires as well. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrible. So the language here gets stronger, exceedingly strong. 
It had huge iron teeth it was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Daniel cannot compare this beast to any known species. Notice that. It's not a leopard, it's not a lion, it's not a bear. It's dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It has iron teeth, which is definitely not normal for any known animal, beast. It's a whole different animal. And it is Rome, the Roman Empire. It had huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. The Roman legions crushed their enemies underfoot. How many of you have ever seen the film Gladiator with Russell Crowe? If you remember the opening sequence where they're battling the Germanic hordes and how they utterly destroyed and crushed those guys with their catapults, flaming balls of fire being thrown at them and so forth. The Roman legions were vicious. And something I learned recently, I've, I've always been something of a history buff, but maybe you already knew this, maybe I was just behind the curve, but it was actually Adolf Hitler's dream, his vision, his goal to establish the revived Roman Empire. Did you know? The Third Reich was to be the revived Roman Empire. And interestingly enough, Hitler's goal was that it would remain for a thousand years. Does that sound familiar? The thousand year reign of Christ on earth? And so not surprisingly, many people who were alive, particularly those of the adult category during World War II, thought that Adolf Hitler was probably the Antichrist. And in fact, he was an Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist, but he was definitely a forerunner of the Antichrist. And like the Antichrist, it's quite possible that he was personally indwelt by Satan for a period of time. Would you agree? So I thought that was very interesting that I didn't realize, you know, even though I'd studied history growing up and we got a lot more information back then than the kids do now. I didn't actually realize, or if I had, I'd, you know, somehow I just kind of overlooked it, that his goal was actually to reestablish the Roman Empire, And in fact, whether that literally means that it will be seated in Rome or not, the spirit of this final world government, the one world government of the Antichrist, it will be in some fashion a revival of the Roman Empire. Another interesting thing about this fourth beast it had ten horns. Now we won't get to this today, but the ten horns are explained in verse 24. And the little horn, which we will be introduced to today, who is in fact the Antichrist, the little, believe it or not, the little horn, uh, we get a further description or explanation regarding the little horn in verses 24 and 25. So Daniel says, verse 8, I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So another horn, a little one coming up among them, someone who at first seems to be insignificant, a minor player, if you will, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So apparently... The Antichrist will start out as a fairly insignificant politician or perhaps a technocrat, somebody from the technology industry. We, I guess we've always just assumed it would be a politician, but not necessarily. In fact, some of these uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and different ones, they've become the real power brokers in the world, haven't they? Tim Cook with Apple. Jack, what's his, the guy from Twitter? Forget his last name. Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. He doesn't play an instrument like Jimmy Dorsey or <laughs> Tommy Dorsey, but I guess he does in a sense. He really toots his own horn. <laughs> so, that was off the cuff. Pretty good. I don't know. 
But if it hadn't been for Roland feeding me the last name, so we have to get co-credit on that one, Roland. So get your royalty check afterward after the service. So apparently the Antichrist will start out as a fairly insignificant politician or again technocrat or what have you, but he'll come to power by deposing three of the ten world rulers of the last days. Perhaps he'll give them a COVID-19 vaccination. Again, if you've taken it, I don't judge you. I love you. I pray for you. But if you haven't noticed, there are people dying from the vaccine. Have you noticed that? Okay, so I'm just saying. Uh, by comparison, it's, it's much, much worse than any other fatalities from any previous vaccines. It's almost 4,000 deaths. But I'm just saying, it's, you know, the information's out there for you to look at. And I have some of my best friends and family members who have taken it, and I just pray for them. And it's a decision everybody has to make individually. And if you really believe God is leading you to do it, then you should do it. But uh, I have not been led in that direction. And I do believe that it's all leading up to part of the end times plan. I've told you over and over again, Satan's goal from the beginning of human history has been to destroy the human race. Okay? By any and every means possible. By disease, by famine, by war, by viruses, and even perhaps by other chemical injections. All right. I just hope I haven't offended anyone, but I have to speak what's in my heart and in my mind. And it is preparing the way for the mark of the beast, okay? I'm not saying it is the mark of the beast, but it's preparing the way. So, apparently he will come to power by deposing three of the ten world rulers of the last days. The ten horns represent, again, I told you we'd get more of an explanation of verse 24, but they do represent... I told you part of the agenda 2021 and now there's an agenda 2030 as well. But there is, a, there is an orchestrated uh, plan being put in place to do away with national sovereignty, independent nations, and divide the world into 10 regions. Perhaps one would be North, the American region, Canada, U.S., Mexico, something along those lines. But the world will be divided into 10 regions. There will be 10 rulers over those ten regions, and apparently he will depose three of them, either by military coup, assassination, blackmail, that's another strong method today, or by whatever means we do not know. In this horn, this little horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man. Bible has various symbolic images, and, and the eyes represent intelligence. The Bible says the eyes are the window to the soul. I speak of intelligence. Most likely, it would stand to reason the Antichrist will have a genius IQ. And there is what they say, a fine line between genius and what? Madness. There's a fine line between genius and madness. And he will probably have a genius IQ and a mouth speaking pompous words. And again, this is compatible with the description of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, 5, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And so again, as I've told you before, I don't believe he just comes on the scene during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, but apparently it's during the last half when he sets himself up in the temple to be God, to be worshipped as God, that his power then becomes practically unrestrained. He will reach the apex and the pinnacle of his power during those last three and a half years when he pronounces himself to be God. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. So again, we're covering a lot of ground here in a short number of verses, as you've probably noticed, thousands of years actually. I watched till thrones were put in place. There are two judgments in Revelation 20. The first is at the end of the tribulation leading into the millennium, that's the first judgment. The second, the great white throne judgment, is at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, 
is this first judgment right after the second coming as we enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ on the earth, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, those not saved, those not born again, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the martyrs of the tribulation, the, the first resurrection actually started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so even though it's called the first resurrection, it involves a number of resurrections because the rapture of the church, which we believe takes place before the tribulation begins, is the first resurrection. It's a continuation of the resurrection from Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of all those raised from the dead. But then here at the end of the tribulation, we have the resurrection of the martyred saints of the tribulation, those who come to Christ during the tribulation and are apparently, according to the book of Revelation, beheaded for their faith. The thrones then, you may ask, well, what are the thrones for? Because at the end of the tribulation, I've talked about this recently, those who remain alive on the earth will fall into two categories, believers, non-believers. Some who survive to the end of the seven-year tribulation will be non-believers, obviously, because they've taken the mark. There will also be believers who survive. How many? We don't know. Many will be killed. Some will survive. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are welcomed into the millennial kingdom. They will be the mortals who will repopulate the earth during the millennium. Somebody's got to do it. You and I will be immortal. We won't be doing that stuff anymore. We won't be procreating. So these who survive, the believers who survive to the end of the tribulation, will be welcomed into the millennial kingdom. The non-believers will be cast out. That's what the thrones are for. And we don't know the exact timing, I don't believe, of the Bema seat, the judgment for believers, not for sins, but for our works here on earth and our rewards. And so that will come into play at some point as well. The Ancient of Days. This is a reference to God the Father. How do we know this? We'll see next week. It's confirmed by the submission of the one like the Son of Man that we read about in verses 13 and 14. We'll get to next week. Daniel talks about the one like the Son of Man, Jesus, in submission to the Ancient of Days. And his role in judgment is discussed in verse 22. Now, the Ancient of Days, it tells us his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. This sounds exactly like the description of Jesus, the glorified Christ whom John sees in his revelation. And in fact, the book of Revelation, it's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning it's the revealing. This book that we're studying now, Revelation, we're not in it today, but the one we've been studying, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ because he's the one bringing the information and he's also revealed in Revelation in all of his splendor and glory, the eyes like flaming fire, the hair like wool, the feet like burnished brass. But this is the Father. But you notice, again, the description is identical to the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. So you could say like Father, like Son. Jesus is the human physical manifestation of the Father. And it tells us his throne was a fiery flame, symbolizing God's divine judgment. Its wheels, a burning fire. Now, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 1, we see a description of the chariot in which God rides across the universe into battle to exercise his sovereignty and to appear as judge. Ezekiel 1, 15 through 21, Ezekiel 10, 1 through 22, we see this chariot of fire. Remember that Elijah was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire. So this is the father. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. 
A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. These multitudes would be the heavenly hosts, the angels, ministering to him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Now, interestingly, Daniel's name means God has judged or God is my judge. And here Daniel sees in this 10th verse of chapter 7, he sees God as the world's judge, which he is. I just told my wife the other day, just a day or two ago, we were talking about something, you know, there's so many things going on in the world right now that can lead to frustration, right? And I said, you know what? There's not going to be any true justice in this world till Jesus comes back. Many people are angry, frustrated, upset, irritated, and certainly people who have been victimized. We see this over and over again. Loved ones harmed in some way, you know, murdered, we, you know, killed by a drunk driver. There are so many situations, and so often there's no real resolution that brings peace and comfort to the soul. Because we now live in a world, as we've talked about, where lawlessness is increasing, right? When we no longer adjudicate based upon God's laws and God's principles, then everything goes down the tubes, right? Our nation was established on godly biblical values and principles, and our laws were governed by those principles, that's no longer the case. And so oftentimes, very sadly, we see a person who is a victim, then the tables are turned and they are portrayed as the perpetrator. And the perpetrator is portrayed as the victim. Have you seen that? Yes. It's happening all the time. And so we have a, a world and a nation in particular, our own nation, filled with hurting, broken, frustrated people because of the lack of true justice. And again, because we're all sinners, we're all imperfect, we're not capable of imparting true justice unless we take our cues from the one who is just. To be impartial. Everything now is based upon feelings, emotions, it's subjective, right? That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And that's why God warned Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit of that tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because you can't handle the truth. Remember that one? <laughs> they weren't capable of handling that much information. Only God can handle it. Only God can have a full and complete knowledge of good and evil, and yet, because of his perfection, he can never delve into the realm of evil. It's a whole different story with mankind. Remember they were naked and they were not ashamed? until after they ate of the fruit. And then shame came into the world, embarrassment, guilt. And so, what a complex world we live in today. But so many people, they get into this place where they feel that they've been wronged, they've been mistreated, and in many cases they have, and sometimes they haven't. It's a matter of perception. But the problem is, we get stuck in that place and locked into that place because we are living under this illusion that man is capable of meeting out justice apart from God. So you've got to get past it. You've got to forgive. You've got to let go. You've got to ask forgiveness for your anger, your bitterness. The Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's God's job to defend us, to protect us, to exact vengeance, because he's the only one qualified to do that. Now, if we are acting in his stead, according to his principles, in other words, the Bible says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? Capital punishment is definitely in the Bible, but we live in a world today where the majority of people seem to believe we should not have capital punishment. So you can murder someone, you can rape someone, you can violate a child and get off with a mild prison sentence. Why do you think this world's so messed up? Because we're not following God's principles anymore. 
So I would encourage you, the best thing you can do is realize when you have acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you've confessed your sins before him and repented, you've asked his forgiveness, you've invited him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior, you've been filled with his Holy Spirit, you've been born again, realize and recognize, because this kind of ties in with another facet of all this, and that is that we get uptight, upset, offended when we feel like our rights have been violated. And now, again, our founding fathers had imparted, they said, certain inalienable rights given to us by God, but as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what Paul called himself, right? A slave. 1 Corinthians 6 says you've been bought with a price. Bob Dylan wrote a song, The Property of Jesus. When you yield your life to God, willingly, voluntarily, he's not going to make you do it, but then you have sold yourself to him. You realize that? You're his property now. Therefore, you have no rights. And that's a good thing, because if you don't have any rights, then nobody can violate your rights. And then you have nothing to get offended about. You see? So I would encourage you to meditate on that. Think about that. Because we often get ourselves in bad places because we feel like somebody has taken advantage of us and violated our rights. You don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right to treat me like that. I have a right to this and I have a right to that. No, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can do with me whatever he wants. And I trust him complicitly, absolutely, 100%. Okay. The court was seated, the books were opened. So this is actually now the second judgment, the great white throne judgment, 1,000 years later at the end of the tribulation. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So this is the final judgment. We've got... The judgment leading into the millennium, and we have the one at the end of the millennium. And Daniel sees God, the Ancient of Days, as being the ultimate judge over all things here. But now he jumps back to the small horn. I watched then, verse 11, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Now this is the only one of the beasts that Daniel speaks of in this manner. And it's because this is the Antichrist, and he does proclaim himself to be God. Now, certainly others before him have done that. The Caesars, for example, in the Roman Empire. But Daniel singles out this final horn, this final beast. I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flames. So Daniel is amazed here by the audacity, the pride the arrogance of this beast. But it ties right in with 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means, writes Paul, to the Thessalonians who had been deceived, or there are those who had attempted to deceive them by telling them that Christ had already come and they missed it. So Paul says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, big D, day of the Lord, which is a series of events, I believe the rapture is the trigger point for the day of the Lord. The rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium. But that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. We talked about this last week, I believe. Some believe it has to do with a worldwide apostasy, which other scriptures will confirm that we are not only headed for a worldwide apostasy. Again, how many of you are reading Warren B. Smith's book? We're already in it. The apostasy is already upon us. The falling away. I think I already shared this statistic, but for the first time in the history of the United States of America, church membership has fallen below 50%. It's like 46, 47%. And that includes all churches, including Mormons and other you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not just evangelical Christian churches, Protestant churches, 
That's everything combined is under 50%. We are in the time of the great falling away. But it could also be referring to, according to some other good Bible teachers, the falling away could be the snatching away, the catching away of the saints, the rapture of the church, and it's probably both. Okay? The Bible is certainly capable of having multiple layers of information built into the scriptures. I find it all the time. So that day, the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So the two seem to be tied together. The falling away, the rapture of the church, and the revealing of the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. And as we talked about, I think, last week, this is all so Satan reincarnate, if you will, because that was Satan's downfall. He determined that he was going to rise above the stars of heaven, the five I wills, Isaiah 14. I will be like the Most High. So that he sits as God in the temple of God. Again, right now there is no temple of God in biblical sense. The temple in Jerusalem has not been rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt at the beginning of the tribulation. And halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will march into the temple and proclaim himself to be God. Does that doesn't sound so far-fetched in this day and age, does it? Again, if you're reading the book, you've read about Maitreya, right? Okay. Not saying Maitreya is the Antichrist, but all of these things are feeding together and it will culminate in the full revelation of all that we're studying. And it'll be in our lifetime, I believe. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So there's good news. He gets it in the end. <laughs> For all the horror he's going to bring upon this planet, he will not go unpunished. Revelation 19.20 then the beast was captured. This is the second coming, Christ coming with the armies of heaven riding on white horses. All the armies of the earth gathered there in the valley of Megiddo to make war against Jesus. How dumb can you get? Huh? Dumb and dumber. The beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. The false prophet will be his right-hand man his uh, spiritual advisor, his, the leader of the one world religion, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so again, as I've told you so often, this is not only true in the book of Revelation, but also in other parts of the Bible, particularly when you're dealing with prophetic elements. Not everything is sequential. Not everything is in sequential order here. We jump right back, verse 12, to these first three empires. The rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. The Babylonian Empire had their dominion taken away. The Medo-Persian Empire had their dominion taken away. The Greek Empire had their dominion taken away. And the final empire of the Antichrist will be the last man-made empire ever to exist on planet Earth. As we look back over the course of human history, we look at these great empires, they're all characterized by death and destruction, aren't they? Just this incessant hunger for domination, for power. Man ruling over his fellow man, wreaking havoc and destruction and plundering and so forth. So, man could never make the argument to God, well, you didn't give us a chance, God. <laughs> God gave us a chance, and we blew it big time. And that's why the dominion theology, if you've heard of that, the kingdom now theology, the uh, new apostolic reformation, or whatever it's called, is another movement. And again, Warren gets into this stuff in his book about all those proclaiming some great worldwide revival coming soon totally contradicts what the Bible says the Bible says just the opposite if you look at the world around you 
The reality is that's not happening. The reality is that cannot and will not happen. In fact, in order for the full unleashing of the wrath of God on an unbelieving world and the full unleashing of the power of Satan, as we saw in chapter 12, particularly during the last three and a half years of the tribulation when he's cast down to the earth, in order for that to happen, God's people have to be removed. We are the restraining force. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is the only thing holding back the massive onslaught of evil that's coming on this planet. Do you realize that? We're not getting taken out because we deserve it. How many of you here today deserve to be saved? Not a one of us. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. Okay, we're not saved because we deserve it, and yet those who would try to refute or argue with or deny the pre-tribulation rapture make the argument that why, why should we be taken out? You know, when Christians for thousands of years have been persecuted, martyred, suffered, why do we deserve to be spared? That has nothing to do with it. Nothing. It's just that God has a plan. He has a timeline. And at some specific point in human history, and I believe very soon, he's going to unfold that plan. And it's, it's just like when you're, uh, if you have a workshop or you're out in your garage or whatever and your child comes in and he wants to help you with your project. But the fact of the matter is you're not going to be able to finish the project with the kid there messing with everything. Right? So what do you do? Uh, son, your mom's calling you. Um, she wants you to come and help her bake cookies. Right? Son, would you go out and give the dog a dog biscuit? Anything to get him out of the way so you can finish the project. You and I will be in the way of what God wants to do and needs to do and will do with this planet. You get it? So it has nothing to do with what we deserve. The purpose of the tribulation is twofold. Perhaps you could say threefold. One, it's to judge an evil, wicked, unbelieving world, which gets more that way every day. All the while that they're taking away children from their parents for things like homeschooling, right? Or giving them instruction in Christianity because the other parent doesn't agree with it right? These types of things. Now, whether you're offended by the Confederate flag or not, there's a lady in New York who had a little rock in her yard and painted on the rock was a little Confederate flag. And now the judge is threatening to take her daughter away from her because she has a rock in her yard with a Confederate flag on it. But at the same time, you have all these groups promoting pedophilia, right? They're even starting to dip their toe in the water of children marrying their own parents, right? We've already got gay marriage. We've already got transgenderism. Now you can have your underage child taking hormones to change their gender, having parts of their bodies removed or added but if you have a rock in your garden with a Confederate flag on it, you might lose your child. I've told you many times, we've gone beyond the age of deception. We are in the age of insanity now. And sin will, in fact, cause you to go insane. And it has for many people. And this world is getting to a place where God very soon will have to deal with it. And he will. It might be a strong message, but guess where I got it? Right there. Good news. The regime of the Antichrist, the one world government that all these people are pushing for, will be the last man-made government ever to exist on this planet. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Each empire, the Bible says God raises up kings, he takes down kings. Each empire 
lasted only as long as God allowed it. We already know how long this last one world government's going to last. Seven years, that's it. So in the second half of the chapter, Daniel receives the interpretation of his vision, and we see the establishing of Christ's millennial kingdom here on earth. Let's stand. As we close in prayer, I'd like to ask if anyone has a prayer request, you just raise your hand. We'd like to include you in that prayer. Just raise your hand. God sees your hand. I see your hand. God knows your heart. Okay, Father, we, we lift up each one now that's raised their hand. You know what's going on. It could be a health issue. It's no problem for you because you're the great physician. We pray for healing from everything from a cold to cancer, Lord. It's, nothing's any different for you. It's just as easy for you to cure cancer as to cure a cold. So we lift up every health issue represented here this morning. We lift it all up to you. Pray for healing and strength. But Lord, we pray that you'd also help us to have the heart of Job, who accepted whatever you brought his way. And we do accept it, Lord, but we also know that you told us to ask, to seek, to knock. And you also said that uh, the prayer of faith would bring healing to the sick person. So we lift each one up to you now. Pray for your healing power to come upon them. We pray for healing from emotional issues as well, Father. Uh, we talked about those hurts, those disappointments, frustrations, anxiety. Lord, you told us to give everything over to you, bring everything to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So we do thank you for all your blessings. But we pray, Lord, that you would take our anxieties, our fears, our doubts, our worries, our concerns, and give us that sound mind of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for relationships that have been strained or even broken, that they could be healed. We pray for those in need of salvation, Lord. Someone here today, perhaps more than one person, may have raised their hand on behalf of an unsaved friend or family member. We lift them up to you and ask that you draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit, that you give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Lord, for financial issues, we live in a real physical world, and we know that the love of money is the root of all evil, but at the same time, it is the commodity by which we get by and live and survive. So we pray for provision for those who may have raised their hand for that issue today. Financial provision, employment, income. Lord, we ask for wisdom and guidance and direction that we could manage our finances in a way that would be pleasing to you and would... would help secure uh, our future as much as possible, although we know that ultimately we cannot put our trust in the works of man. So I pray for encouragement, for strength, for faith, for each one. We thank you for your word. We ask that you help us to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, name we pray. Amen.